again, we're just so thankful for uh, God, your grace and your kindness and your love. It's uh, your name. I pray for all these things. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Thank you all for setting the table for us for the Word of God this morning. And uh, Zach, always a joy when you lead us, brother. I love, I love and appreciate you. All right, and, and Sarah as well. Don't, don't think I don't underestimate how important and how thankful we are for Sarah. Don't you love that what she does when she prepares us for worship here to help us? All right, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take, with, take them and turn them with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And I want to remind us as you're flipping there of where we have been. We've been working through the Gospel of Luke. And I want to make this uh, uh, very clear because it's important in the context of this passage to better understand what Luke wants us to walk away with and know and understand in this text today. Uh, Jesus in chapter 11 has delivered uh, a young man who had a demon possession and was mute from it. And in chapter 12... We see that he had a, uh, at the end of 11, he had a, uh, invita- thank you, invitation from a Pharisee to go to dinner. And in that dinner invitation, something happened. Uh, he did not wash his hands as was the, the customary practice of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. And most Jews, before they sat down to eat a meal, he just was ready to eat. And whether it was a glance or whether it was a unheard Uh, cry in the heart, Jesus began to see and understand that this man was far from the Lord in his pharisaical heart. And so he has a very, turns the dinner conversation, very confrontational. Would have been awkward if we were there. Then we leave this and we are with the disciples and Jesus is telling them here in the context of chapter 12, don't be like the Pharisee. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't let this leaven of Pharisaicalism work its way into the church and specifically into your heart and into your life and motivate you. And it is in this context that we find this passage today. He has already warned us at the opening of 11, don't be like the Pharisees and the 11 that is there. Last week, we saw the fear of man and how it grips our hearts to a level that we're probably not even aware of. And here in this passage today, Jesus is going to give us encouragement and a warning and an encouragement again. Let's see what the Word of God says. This is the Word of God, church. Hear it. That is last week's text. I'm going to use it off my iPad here. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, beginning in verse 8, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who speaks a word against the Son of Man that will be forgiven, but the one who speaks a word, the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in the very hour what you ought to say. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. This is his holy, inerrant, infallible word. Let's hear it today. Our Lord starts this section of scripture with an encouragement to believers. 
What we are forced to think about here is what is the relationship between our tongues and Christ here? And can we claim this? Can we claim this encouragement? Look what he says, verse 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. No doubt, this kind of language would have made every Jewish person's mind immediately go to the final judgment. They would have thought about the final judgment of God where they appear in the high court of heaven before all of the angels who have remained faithful to the Lord and they are being judged for how they have lived their life and what they have said in their lifetime. And Jesus says here in this moment that he will acknowledge us before God in heaven's high court. Now, (laughs) I want to say something here. This is an amazing encouragement. I could almost spend, listen, I could call Zach back up here and have him lead us in worship just on this concept that Jesus will acknowledge us before the Father and we could just praise our way on out here all the way till three or four o'clock today just on this concept that the Lord will not abandon us and when we stand before God, He will stand as our advocate. I'm not sure if I've ever shared this story with you or not. If I have, then... Sorry, you have to listen to it again. If you haven't, then this is fresh for you. Um, I was known to get a few traffic tickets when I lived in Louisville, Kentucky. One such traffic ticket, uh, usually I could get some help from the police department because I knew several police officers when I was a preschool teacher and I watched their kids and they would kind of take care of it for me. But this one particular one got submitted to the courts before they could catch it. And so I had to go to the courtroom. And I don't know if you've ever had to go to the courtroom to deal with a ticket but it's not a fun experience, right? They pack you in the line, you're sitting there waiting, and of course I had no advocate. And uh, as I was sitting there in the court waiting, I had a, one of the kids' dads that I taught, he was a lawyer, he came over and he said, Mr. Travis, is that you? That was my name back then. I was a preschool teacher and my name was Mr. Travis, whatever everybody called me. And uh, I said, yeah, man, I got this ticket. It was a rolling stop. I was on my way to work and I just was in a hurry and I just did a rolling stop. He's like, let me see that. And he took it. Walked up to the court's bench, the judge's bench, spoke something to him. He looked at me and said, Mr. Tyler, you're free to go. Have a nice day. Didn't have to pay the ticket, didn't have nothing. The advocate stood in my place, took care of the ticket, and it was gone. Whether it was right or wrong, I'm not sure. But it was nice to get out of that ticket, right? Here in a similar fashion, this is what Christ does. This is the joy of this passage. This is the encouragement of this passage. You know, when it's our turn to stand before God in his, in his high courtroom, when there is, it would be a terrible thing to face God without an advocate. And here in this passage, Jesus says what? I will acknowledge you before God. God will, will stand in our place. He will hold us up and say, no, he's, he, sheep, they belong to me. Their sins are covered. There is an allegiance there. But look, it's contingent upon what? What does it say there? We remain faithful and acknowledge him before what? Men and women and boys and girls here. Right? There's a contingency there. We must profess him here. Right? How do we do that? Well, whenever we are saved, the easiest way that we acknowledge that we have have accepted Christ is through baptism, isn't it? Isn't baptism a public declaration that you have aligned yourself with Christ and you are proclaiming for everyone who watches that you belong to Him and that He is yours for eternity? Right? That is the first major acknowledgement that we can do. And then also in daily living. Listen, 
We live in a culture that is growing more and more acidic towards the Christian faith, towards biblical Christianity. They're okay with the Christianity if you say, well, I believe in Jesus and that's where my faith is. But if you want to believe something else and you want to make a different path for yourself, that's okay too. Here's my question. According to the passage that we just read, is that a gospel and a presentation of Jesus and the faith that Jesus himself would be okay with and would affirm? And I think the answer to that is absolutely not. Because Jesus has said in John 14, what? I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Right? So we're called here in an increasingly acidic age to profess Christ, especially when it will cost us, and more, for, more on that in just a moment. Now, let's move forward here. And this, the title of my sermon, if you saw it in your bulletin this morning, is The Unforgivable Sin. And we're going to start to see this here. Uh, but before we look at it, there's one more thing attached to the encouragement. Look at the next verse. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be sent to hell. That's what the passage says, right? No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says, we'll be what? Forgiven. Isn't this amazing? Jesus says here what? I will stand and be an advocate for you on the day of the high courtroom when you appear before God my Father. And he says here, you can even go on in your life and you can sin against me and I will still forgive you and be your advocate. I will still do that for you. Can you think of any examples from the Bible of someone who denied Jesus at some point, sinned against Jesus, he forgave them and restored them? Can you think of anybody like that? I think of Peter, don't you? Peter warming himself by the fire there as the trial is going on. Aren't you the one that was with Jesus of Nazareth? Aren't you the Galilean? I tell you, I don't even know the man. Cock-a-doodle-doo, right? Rooster crows, it's just as Jesus had predicted. He denied Christ three times. And yet when Christ is risen and he sees him on the shore, jumps into the water, swims to Christ, and what does Jesus do? So lovingly, so graciously, so tenderly, he forgives him, he restores him, and Peter goes on and is martyred for Jesus later. Contrast that with Judas, right? Judas denied Christ as well and sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Did he have forgiveness? Well, that's a great segue, isn't it? Let's look closer at this here. All right. I have a little acronym. If you're a note taker this morning, I encourage you to take your pen and write down this acronym I'm going to give you or use it on your phones, however you take notes to help you understand what's going on in the second half of this passage. Because it says here, But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. You can sin against Jesus. He will advocate for you. But if you sin against the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is this? Well, here's what this is. We've got to get down under this and behind this. I was uh, on the Christian counseling track for some time. And I'm very grateful for that because I think it impacted my preaching in a very helpful way. But I soon realized when I sat in a room with people and listened to them talk about their problems all day, it wasn't for me, that I preferred rather to preach and to lead. I still do some counseling and I do enjoy some of it. I just don't want to do it 40 to 60 hours a week, right? One of the things I learned in counseling is you have the presenting issue that people give you. They say, this is my problem. This is my issue. This is the words they'll use on the front end. But then you have 
the real issue back here and behind it. There is a reason people use the words that they use. There is reasons behind the words. There's a heart attitude behind the words that they use. And that's what we're trying to get at here, right? What is the heart attitude behind that? What is the real reason why you say the things that you say and do the things that you do? There's a, uh, there's a broad array of folks who have written on this passage and this concept, and I'm going to borrow from some of them. The Bible says in many counselors there is safety, so I'm going to use that safety net as I preach this morning. But here is your acronym that I promised you. C-U-R-D, curd. Do you know what that is, cheese curd? Does anybody here like cheese curds? You bite into them and they're squeaky on your teeth. Or if you're from Indiana, they deep fry them and they're wonderful because anything deep fried is wonderful, right? Melted cheese is always good. Clarity, understanding, rejection, and defiance. That's the, the four letters and what they stand for. So let's jump into this and understand this better. First of all, clarity. There is a great clarity in what God reveals to the person who has blasphemed the Holy Spirit. It comes in the context that God gives them truth revealed plainly. For example, as Jesus was preaching as a country preacher along the highways and byways in Judea there and in Jerusalem and surrounding areas, it became very clear that Jesus taught with an authority that no one else had that was clear to everybody. We read that over and over again in the Gospels. And that he had a clarity whenever he preached so that whenever he was telling them or preaching to them was made clear using different parables to make things that were hard and difficult and complex in heaven more plain and clear to the people of his day and to us as well. Second of all, understanding. So the first part of the C is about the speaker, the one who is conveying the truth that they are clear, they are concise, they are true. Furthermore, even Jesus had an authority. Not only did he preach and teach consistently in the countryside, he went about doing miracles, bringing people back from the dead, casting out demons, healing those who were lame, and they could walk and see and hear. And Jesus was doing these things to affirm who he was. So it's all on the speaker in the second one, the the first one. The second one is about the understanding of the individual seeing what is happening. There is often a disconnect between what is being communicated and what is being heard. There are oftentimes two different things. Perhaps you've seen the commercial where the girl comes into the kitchen all excited, mom, I got into, and it's some Ivy League school, and all the dad hears was they they play it after they get done celebrating, play the same clip for the dad's understanding of the conversation. Mom, dad, you're not going to believe I got into one of the most expensive colleges in the U.S., and now you all are going to have to pay for them and go in debt forever, and you're never going to get out from under this debt. The dad's just kind of sitting there sipping his coffee with his eyes real big, trying to take in what he understands this to be. And so there's a disconnect sometimes between the hearing and the understanding. But here... The understanding of what has been revealed. What is the understanding of the hearer of the gospel? Those who have seen this here. uh, The understanding is clear. It is not ignorant. They are not ignorant of the gospel, right? You've often heard the phrase said, ignorance is bliss. This is not true in the faith. This is not true in Christianity. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is being condemned to hopelessness and to hell. Ignorance is not the issue in this particular equation. Uh, they are, it's not that they are going without understanding. That's not it. They do have a level of understanding here. They understand the truth. They know it's true. And we see people like this. And that leads to the third one, which is rejection. They understand the gospel. They understand who Jesus is. 
And there's a malicious rejection of what God has revealed. That's the next step after understanding. If you have a person who has witnessed God's working and what that means, and they understand what that means, what do you expect to happen next? You expect someone who has seen God work and heard God in the authority and the truth, and they have, they have been close to God, and they have seen the gospel revealed. You expect them to embrace God's grace and be transformed by that grace. Is that what happens always? The answer is a resounding no. Remember what I said about Judas a minute ago? Judas was proximity-wise the same distance from Jesus that Peter was. But when Judas fell and denied Christ and sold him for 30 pieces, he went away. He, he disappeared without repentance, right? See, Peter kind of disappears into the fishing boat, but he comes back and repents. That's always the proof of the pudding, isn't it? Is that there is a disappearance, but then there is a return and a repentance. That's, that's kind of the proof that there's true salvation that's there. Uh, but Judas is even sorrowful, isn't he? Isn't Judas sorrowful for what he's done? But he does not come to a point of being so sorrowful that he repents. He hangs himself. And it happens... Too many times in the local body, people disappear without repentance, and they're just gone. And no one knows what to make of it. And it is a, it is a hardening of the heart that is happening here, right? There are other examples of people who have, it's been made very clear to them what God is doing and the work He's doing, and they have witnessed what God is doing. How about the people that were in the wilderness? Remember that generation wandering around the desert? God provided for them all the food that they needed for the day, Every morning, raining down heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but getting up every morning, and I just always imagine it being like Krispy Kreme's donuts, hot and fresh, or something like that, wafting down from heaven and feeding and sustaining you, you would think, oh, look what God has done. He cares for us. He will take care of us. And you would expect a heart continually embracing His grace and His mercy. And what is the attitude of the people after some time? Well, manna again. Let me guess what it is this morning. Manna again this morning. You know, at least when we were in Egypt, we had quail and we had green onions. You guys remember that? You also were captive to slavery. But you seem to forget that part because you're fixated on onions and quail, right? No, no, no. This malicious rejection, this comes from someone who knows God, who sees God, who understands God, and still rejects Him. One theologian, uh, Bakuf, said this, Not in doubting the truth, nor in the sinful denial of it, but of a contradiction that goes contrary to the mind, even contrary to the heart. They know what he or she knows in the heart to be true, and it comes from what is seen and known, and still they reject it. This is sin. This is a sin about which someone who has tasted God's goodness and fallen away. This is a... Those who have truly and deeply received a knowledge of truth and choose their life instead of choosing to embrace grace. This is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, when I tell you this, immediately your mind 
kind of floods to a lot of things. Well, how is this possible? How could there be a sin which is not forgivable? Are they beyond the grace of God? Has God's grace become inept? Is God not able to forgive all sins? Again, I turn to help from the past of a great mind who helped me to understand this. I'm very thankful for these words. A professor Bonnick from yesteryear, probably 100 years ago, he wrote this. He says, the unforgivable sin is a sin against the gospel in its clearest revelation. A sin which consists not in doubting or simply denying truth, but a denial that goes against the conviction of the intelligence, against the enlightenment of the conscience, against the dictates of the heart in a conscience and willful and intentional imputation of the influence and working of Satan to that which is clearly recognized as God's work. Paul talks about that. They call evil good and good evil. In a willful declaration that the Holy Spirit is the spirit from the abyss and that truth is a lie and that Christ is Satan himself. For this reason, the sin is unforgivable, although God's grace is not too small and too powerless for it. Yet, in the kingdom of sin, there are laws and ordinances which placed by God and maintained by him. I'm so thankful for that last line that he penned for us there. It is not that God's grace is inept or if he is too big, he is too small to overcome any such sin. It is that he has set certain laws in place and abides by such things. It goes on to say, this sin is of such a nature that it extends, it excludes all repentance. Listen to this next part. Catarizes the conscience, burns, sears the conscience, catarizes the conscience, and hardens the sinner once for all, and in this way makes his or her sin unpardonable. Let me read that last part again. The, the sin of this nature excludes all repentance, uh, cauterizes the conscience, and hardens the sinner once for all in a way that makes sin unpardonable. And finally, D, the denial. The person continues with a defiant heart, not outside the reach of Jesus' work on the cross necessarily as we just saw, but they are willfully continuing in that defiance. They do not take, they have tasted and they have rejected. They have not repented and they get to a point where it seems to indicate it may be beyond them to do so. They have a serious conscience issue. Now, some of you may be sitting here this morning and you may be asking yourself this question, <clears throat> have I gone too far? Am I at a point where I am guilty of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and I am too far gone? Well, let me, let me say this. If you are struggling with that question, it's an indicator that you're okay. Because generally those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit understand and don't care. So the fact that you care about that question indicates that the Holy Spirit is working in your life and your heart and you're feeling conviction. The one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit is happy to walk away and live a life of sin and fleshly desire and have no problem with that whatsoever. You see, here's the reality of this. There's a, there's a warning here, right? Keep guard over your heart. Keep guard over your heart. Never assume it couldn't be you, right? Listen, we need to nurture hearts that are sensitive to the Holy Spirit's promptings and pulls, right? You want to have a heart 
that when the Holy Spirit just gently tugs you on the shirt of the corner of the shirt, you quickly turn and follow him. You don't want to have a heart that is that has been nurtured to a degree to where uh, you have to have God get out a sledgehammer or a sword in order to correct your path. You want to nurture your heart in such a way that just a gentle nudge is all it takes for us to turn to the Lord. Can somebody close those blinds in the black back? I'm getting blinded by those car windows. Somebody just close the blinds. Thank you. It's like I was trying to make that point and the sun was like beaming into my face. Thank you. Especially that one on the left side. I appreciate it. If I stand in this one spot, I can kind of not be blinded. But anyhow. All right. Back to the text. Verses 1 through 12. Here we go. Much better. Verses 1 through 12, 11 through 12 here. I hope you see the structure of this passage. Verses 11 and 12. Uh, 8 is about acknowledging Christ. 9 is about denying Christ, right? Don't deny him before men. 10, which we just got done looking at, is about the ultimate denial of Christ. And now, 11 and 12, sort of a final encouragement, back to acknowledging Christ and how to acknowledge Christ during a fearful trial. All right. So here we have his disciples coming in. What does it say? And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, all the people who give you anxiety, right? When they bring you in front of these people, stand for Christ or deny him is going to be the two options. There's nothing in between, right? Cling to Christ or flee from him. There won't be an in-between. Calling them here towards Christ. And he's trying to give them some confidence because he knows they will face these things. And to be quite honest, beloved, so will we. I can remember uh, in 1999, it's a spring morning, and the report came in from Columbine High School about two shooters who were going through the high school. They were asking students, do you believe in God? Do you trust Jesus? And if they answered yes, they would shoot them and kill them immediately. It struck fear in the nation's heart. Do you all remember that, the Columbine shootings? There was one, one girl in particular, Rebecca, I think was her name. She'd be my age now. They asked her, do you believe in God? Do you trust Christ? And the only testimony she gave in this moment of intense persecution was yes, and she was killed immediately. Maybe it won't be that dramatic for us. Maybe it will be. I don't know what God has for the end of our path. But I do know this. How are we to make these verses out? How will these affect us? Does this verse mean that we will instantly be given a high IQ like Al Mohler and we can, we can you know, uh, give great defenses and give like a Mars Hill dissertation like the Apostle Paul did? I don't think so. I don't think what that per- verse means. I don't think there's like magical prayers that will somehow give you a higher IQ. But I do think this verse means this. When the moment of high heat comes and the trial comes upon you and the moment of intense trial comes upon you, God will give you what you need in that moment to overcome that trial with the Holy Spirit's help. He doesn't give it to you necessarily ahead of time. The the Holy Spirit is very famous for giving you what you need in the moment you need it and not before you need it. Right? And I think that's what this passage is about. This is what this passage seems to be indicating here. Uh, it, it is going to come down to, it may be just a simple testimony like Rebecca at Columbine High School on that spring morning in 1999. Do you trust Christ? Do you believe in God? Yes. That was the moment that the Holy Spirit gave her what she needed to answer that correctly and right and for her to be embraced in the arms of Christ immediately. 
For us, it may be different. It may cost us jobs. It may cost us family. It may cost us friends. But never deny who Christ is, no matter what the stakes are, even your very life. Remember what Jesus said last time, don't fear those who can kill the body. Fear those who can kill the body and the soul. So, this morning, do you claim Christ? Do you praise God? Do you acknowledge that He belongs to me and I belong to Him? You know, the stakes get pretty high in this passage. They don't get much higher than this. This is as high as they get. When the greatest trials come, our God will sustain His people. When the stakes are highest, the God you have confessed will confess that He knows you. Let's pray. Our Father, help us to stand in this faith that has been handed down to us. Help us to stand in the saving gospel and the wonderful Savior. Our own uh, intimidation that we feel in the world. Lord, help us to see what could drive us from the cross. Help us rather to embrace it and cling to it. May we never be tricked into thinking that the approval of men and women and boys and girls who are not of you is more important than your approval. It is not. Help us to remember and not be tricked to thinking that the approval of the world and the accolades and the gifts this world can give us is more important than you. They are not. If that day should come where we face a question like came in 1999 at Columbine High School, if that should come, Lord, help us to stand faithful when life is on the line. Help us to stand firm. Help us to confess the Savior, the name above all names, the only name by which we can be saved, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning I've primarily been speaking to believers. This passage is written to those who are claiming Christ and trying to follow Him. But if you're here today and you realize, I have been living a life that was fake. I have been denying Christ too many times. Have you not seen this morning how gracious God is? He stands ready and willing to forgive you now. Just as He forgave Peter. Won't you come to Him? Won't you be forgiven now? Won't you proclaim Him in front of this church? and all who are in your life in this world. Let's do that as we sing. I'll be in the back to receive you. Please stand.